Okay. Mark, remind me at the end, because probably people, over the next 10 minutes, people will trickle in, and if we do it at the end, there's more. <laughs> um, and remind me to say it again at the end also is that uh, starting, this is the, what is this? This is October, what, 26th, 27th? You know, so this is the last October. We'll start a, a new topic in November. Um, on the Holy Spirit, and, and that, that's going to dovetail real good with what we're talking about today, so, um, so that, and we'll probably carry that through December, because uh, most likely we will only meet twice in November and twice in December, because uh, the first two weeks, you have the first two weeks in November, then the third one, if there's a breakfast, the fourth one is Thanksgiving weekend, which we won't meet, and then uh, come December, you got the first two weekends, and then the breakfast, and then Christmas, so uh, you know, so, so, you know, the next four, and then, um, you know, I was thinking also that, you know, we have the breakfast on the third Saturday of the month, and it, it kind of breaks up the, the, the topic flow, you know, because you do two weeks on a topic, and then you have the breakfast, and then you come back for one more week on the topic, I'm thinking about starting the topic the week after the breakfast, and, and that way you got three weeks right in a row, you know, and then you have the breakfast, and then you start a new one the week after that. And it'll be a little confusing for the announcements, um, but I don't want to mess with Mike's, you know, third Saturday routine. So I'm not going to, I was thinking I could ask him to maybe flip it to the fourth or something, but I'm going to leave him alone, and uh, and we'll just do our thing that way. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, we'll still announce it, you know, at the, the, whatever, the week before the month, so people know the topic coming up, and encourage, you know, continue to encourage people to come, invite, you know, the young men, when you see them in church, and, uh, you know, invite them, tell them, hey, <laughs> it's it's kind of funny, like, you know, for years, the there was a, uh, the big complaint was, where's the discipleship, where's the discipleship, well, here it is, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, 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 <laughs> Well, what I mean by young is, is you know, like, you know, young men like me. <laughs> I didn't go to bed two hours ago. Uh, so, you know, open, you can open this morning to, we'll, and we'll pray in just a second, but open to uh, John chapter 14, and, uh, and also, if you just real, we're going to start in Matthew 28, but just as a, a springboard, so the, we'll, we'll start in John 14 after that, so Matthew 28 and John 14 and let's just ask the Lord he's so good he's so good his his presence is so available his he just wants to fellowship with us he you know we think we get into this thing where we think we have to work our way in in you know or that that you know you got to go through the right channels or something in order to tune in or something and it's just he so wants to meet with us so immediately you know and uh so let's just pray father we we thank you lord for the promise of your word we thank you lord that our sins are completely washed away in the blood of jesus christ that you to see us you have to look at jesus 
and you see us in the perfection of, of his righteousness. And we thank you, Lord, that we have that privilege, that, that whatever struggle we're, we're facing, whatever wrestling match we're, we're going through or temptation we're fighting off or whatever condemnation the devil is seeking to launch upon us, Lord, uh, whatever it is, we come by faith and we come in confidence, Lord, that, that you've forgiven us that you already know every day of our life before we ever lived it and you chose to save us anyway. And, and so, Lord, we just come to you this morning and we pray in Jesus' name that you would fill us with your spirit, even right now. That you would make us aware of your presence. That you would let your perfect peace fill our hearts and our minds. That you would let your word come to life. That, that we would be so filled with you that... You would meet with us here. We pray that you would teach us, Lord, as we've come aside. Lord, we didn't come in vain. We're not here superstitiously thinking that, oh, if we come, then God will bless. That's not it, Lord. We're here because we want to learn of you. You said that if we would come to you and learn of you, that we would find rest for our souls. And so we ask you, Lord, to, to just be our shepherd this morning, Lord, and, and that you would look on each one of us. And, and Lord, that you would just, just help us. And so we just pray, Father, be, be our guard, be our guide. And Father, we pray for the men of this church. We pray that, that, uh, that they would just draw close to you, Lord, and, and, and that they'd be fed and filled by you, Lord, and uh, enriched, drawn away in, 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 your, in your kindness and your love. And we just pray, bless this time we have this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And now uh, you might want to silence your cell phones, as someone just reminded me. <laughs> so Matthew chapter 28. Some of the last words that Jesus spoke. Before ascending <clears throat> back into glory. Prior to the start of the church and the day of Pentecost. The last command that he gave the twelve, well, it would be the eleven, because <laughs> Judas was no longer with them. In verse 16, it says this, it says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And so the last word that Jesus gave to his disciples prior to his departure was that we're to go and teach all nations. Now if you have an NIV, I believe it says make disciples of all nations. And, and it's essentially the same thing because the method of making a disciple is to teach them the things that Jesus has commanded. That's, that's what it means. And so... That's what we've sought to do here in these last weeks since September when we began uh, doing this, looking at the teachings of Jesus. 
if a disciple is defined by someone who learns and then applies the teachings of Jesus, then that's what we've been doing over the course of, of these weeks, looking at the teachings of Jesus. What did Jesus teach? Now, we've scratched the surface. I mean, we, we looked at a few parables, a couple conversations, and, and just really highlights of the major, you know, things. But, but it's, it's almost inexhaustible to really, if we were to go through the Gospels and see the interactions and uh, the miracles and to see, you know, the heart and the, the, the pulse behind all that he did, you know, we, we've barely scratched the surface. But that's been our objective, to hear the teachings of Jesus, to allow them to work within our lives that, that we might be disciples, followers of Jesus in the purest sense of what it means. So today we look at, in John chapter 14, at one of the most comprehensive teachings, really, that Jesus gave. It wasn't a sermon. It's not branded as a sermon that he gave. But if you look at John chapter 14, 15, and 16, it's almost exclusively in red letters, meaning that Jesus just was speaking to them um, there and teaching them. And his topic, his objective in speaking these things was, was one and the same. And that is to describe to us the presence, the purpose, and the power of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. And so we have Jesus teaching on the Holy Spirit in these chapters, a very important thing for us. It's probably one of the most important things for us, um, you know, really. So, in John chapter 14, as we begin, and I, and I you know, I'm tempted in some ways to skip right to verse 16 when he speaks, begins his specifics, but I don't want to skip the lead up to it, because, uh, you know, we're supposed to be listening to what Jesus said, not what I said. So, Let's let's start in verse 1 and just look at the lead up into this. It begins in the first three verses with Jesus' word to his disciples that he is going to be leaving. He says in verse 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, they're going to be troubled. Jesus is going to say they're going to be troubled. And it's because he's saying to them that he's going to be leaving. He says it in verse 2. He says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, here is the, the word Jesus is giving that he is going. And he tells them, first of all, that he's going to prepare a place for them and that he will be returning. And so, you know, you have, you know, two whole other branches of doctrine tucked into here. The doctrine of heaven, that is eternity and, and, and you know, where we will spend our eternity. And then the doctrine of the second coming, that is that Jesus is coming again. So if you read Matthew chapters 24 and 25, uh, Luke chapter 19 and 21 and uh, 22, and you read what Jesus spoke, there you get the teaching about the second coming that he gave. Um, and you know, we talk quite a bit about that uh, often, so I, I'm going to go with it that you're somewhat versed in that concept. But he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come again. I'm going to receive you to myself that where I am there you may be. And then he says in verse four here, 
in, in verses 4 through 11, this whole chunk of this, is Jesus declaring unto them that they know the way. They know the way. In other words, the road map. So, if you think about it for a second, you know, in the days before uh, cell phones, smartphones, and GPS, if you wanted to go from here to somewhere, you would have to get out a map, you know, and, and kind of plan your journey, chart your course, how the route you were going to take to get there. And, and we're not talking about going from here to New York City, but we're talking about getting from earth to heaven. And that requires a whole different kind of map. And that's the map that Jesus is talking about here in verses 4 through 11. He says this, he says, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. So you know how to get there, he says. Now, <laughs> they didn't know what he was talking about, as we see in verse 5. It says, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not where you go, and how can we know the way? And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him, and have seen him. And Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. If you just show us God, show us God, that would be good enough. What you're saying right now is confusing. We don't know what you're talking about. So show us the Father, and that will be sufficient. And Jesus saith unto him, verse 9, Have I been so long a time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus Christ is the express image of his person. That is, that he's the exact replica. Colossians chapter 1, it says the same thing, that he is the expression of the Father. In John chapter 1 verse 1, that famous verse, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so Jesus was sent to be a witness, to bear witness, to be an example of the Father. And here he says to Philip, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now that is great, isn't it? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's a living example of what God is like. You see the way that Jesus dealt with the woman who was taken in the act of adultery. Where are those thine accusers? There is none, Lord. Neither do I condemn thee. Go your way and sin no more. You know, freeing this woman and revealing grace, the grace that comes from God, you know. The, the, the story that Jesus spoke concerning the prodigal son, the one who took his father's gifts, his father's goods, and wasted them on, on lewd living, and then, you know, realizes as he's eating pig slop that he, that he needs to go home thinking that maybe his father would receive him as a slave, but yet finding that the robe of the father is thrown around him, the fatted calf is slaughtered, and a festival is given upon the return of an unwise son. You know, it reveals who God is, and that's what Jesus did. And so he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So how do you say, show us the father? Don't you believe, here in verse 10, don't you believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me? The words that I speak unto you, I don't speak of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, 
he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works sake. And so he gives to us here the roadmap to heaven. And it is essentially two things. Number one, that Jesus is the way. That no man comes to the Father but through him. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the door. The door into this salvation that we enjoy, this experience that we have in a relationship with God. So first of all, the way is Jesus. The path is the knowledge of God, knowing him. That's what he says in verse 7. He says, from henceforth you know him and have seen him. And so the path, the door is Jesus. The path is a relationship with God. You've heard that cliched phrase, right? That it, it isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And so this path that we're on is not a religious adherence. It's not a checklist of do's and don'ts. But rather it's a relationship that we have with the true and the living God. And Jesus says, this is the way. And then he caps it off in verse 11 by saying, believe. Twice. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very work's sake. And so it's faith in Christ that brings us into a relationship with God, and that is the way to get to glory. That's the roadmap. Now, in verse 11 or verse 12, Jesus makes a radical claim that has stumbled many throughout the ages. Verse 12. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now this is a segue into what Jesus is about to teach them about for the next two and a half chapters. If I go away, the works that I do shall you do, and greater works than these shall you do, because I am going to my Father. In other words, there's a direct correlation between my departure and your empowerment. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, many have asked the question saying, if Jesus said, greater works than mine shall you do, then why is it that when we look into our own lives and look around the church of Jesus Christ, we don't see people walking on water, confessing away leprosy, raising the dead, you know, doing these incredible works, you know, that, that, that Jesus did. Why don't we see ourselves or others doing these things if Jesus said greater works than these shall you do? Well, the answer is in how you qualify what is a great work. How did Jesus qualify what a great work was? It says that these four friends, they hauled their crippled buddy up onto the roof of the house. The multitude was so great that they couldn't get into the house to bring him to the place where Jesus was. There was no possible way. And so they did what made sense to them. They broke open the roof and lowered down their crippled friend onto the floor there in front of Jesus. And Jesus marveled joyfully when he saw their faith. And it says that he looked at the man who was crippled and he said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Your sins are forgiven. And, you know, the response to that phrase was 
immense as those that were in the house said, who is this man that has the audacity to, to say that someone's sins are forgiven? Who can forgive sins but God only? The response of the four friends was, that's not why we brought him here. We didn't bring him here to have his sins forgiven. We brought him here so he could play rugby with us again. So that his legs would be fixed. What are you talking about? See, their concept of a great work was the fixing of the body. The addressing of the temporal need. The dealing with something that would profit this man for a season. But what Jesus did is that he dealt with something that would benefit this man eternally. Which is the greater work? The one that fixes the temporal or the one that addresses the eternal? It depends who you are. If you're the crippled man, <laughs> it depends what you want. If you're the crippled man, you know. But then Jesus, of course, went on to say, okay, so that you might know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, it says that he saith to the man who is crippled, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately he received strength and he picked up his bed and he walked out and he was healed. Jesus thereby proving that he had power to do the first thing that he said. Which is the more important? If a man is fixed of his infirmity, or if a man gets the thing that he's praying for, he is perhaps helped for a season, benefited for a time. But if his sins remain yet unforgiven, that fix is useless in the long term. The greatest need that man has is to be saved. And it is that greater work that Jesus is speaking of in John chapter 14 verse 12 when he says, greater works than these shall you do. What is the value of a human soul? Jesus said that if a man gains the whole world and yet loses his soul, it profits him nothing. Therefore, the value of a human soul exceeds the value of all combined wealth, value, and possession in the entire planet. One soul is worth more than the whole planet in God's economy. So for you and I, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, to speak to someone the message of salvation and to see God the Holy Spirit then work in that person's life and receive it, is a greater work than if you were to walk on water or confess away leprosy or see a limb regrown there on the spot or throw a wheelchair across a crowded auditorium, you know, someone who's healed in the name of, you know, or something. How is it that we'll do these greater works when Jesus goes to his father, this radical claim that he makes? I'm sure that, I mean, think if you were one of those 12 that were sitting there listening to Jesus. Right? You're one of those 12. You're thinking, wow, I'm going to walk on water. <laughs> I think there's a lot of Christians that have been baptized the second time trying to do that. Lord, I, I just believe. I believe, you know. <laughs> Dunk tank, you know. But there's probably a running tally in heaven, you know, every time someone tries that. <laughs> we'll see it when we get there. Now in, in verses 13 through 15, he gives us the promise of what we have through prayer. He says here, he says, And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. 
Now, this, this is a great promise of prayer, and I won't get off on a tangent on it, but I will say this, is that it's important that we recognize who Jesus is speaking to here. This is not a blank check. God does not give us the right to just confess or ask in his name, and he's good, he is bound by his word to do whatever it is that we ask. No father on the planet is going to give something to his child that will destroy him or that is harmful to him. And yet, how many people pray in Jesus' name for things that will do just that? This promise is given to disciples. People that obey the commandments, that are walking in his truth, that their heart is towards the things of God. That's who this promise is given to. And to someone in such a state whose heart is for the, for the Lord, who wants the will of the Lord, and who's obedient to the commandments of the Lord, yeah, this is exactly what he's saying, that I will do what you ask in my name. It will be done. Well, now he goes on, and he, in verse 16 through 20, gives to them the promise of, of a guide. He says in verse 16, he says, and I will pray to the Father and he will give you another comforter. The word comforter in the Greek is the word parakletos. The word para is where we get the word parallel. It means alongside of and kletos means you know, helper or comforter. So the, the, the word is translated comforter. It's someone who comes alongside to help. That's what it means. I will give you someone who will come alongside. Now, interesting, he gave us the road map back in the first few verses, remember? And then he gave us the tools in prayer and the promise, you know, and now he's telling us that not only do you have the map, you know the way, and I'll be with you, but he says, now you have a guide. There's going to be a guide, someone that will help you in this walk, this time that you're in this world. He says, Verse 17, he tells us who the comforter is. He says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not. Notice that he says him and not it. Neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and he shall be in you. So the question is, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is this guide, this comforter that Jesus is saying is going to come, that Jesus personifies? It's not a source or a power. It's a him. It's a person. Who is the Holy Spirit? The answer is that he is the invisible presence of the almighty living God. The Bible tells us that he is first of all a person, not an it, not a thing. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit was present and involved in creation. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, literally brooded or energized, the Spirit of God present and impacting the creation. The Bible tells us that he was involved in the incarnation of Christ, that it was the Holy Ghost that came upon Mary that implanted in her womb the Son of God, Jesus, that the Holy Ghost partaking in the incarnation of Christ. That the Holy Spirit took part in the crucifixion of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 it says, He through the eternal Spirit offered himself a ransom for all through the Spirit of God. He was evident 
present in the ministry of Christ. When you read Luke chapter 4 and you realize that Jesus did nothing apart from the empowering of the Spirit. He was baptized in the Spirit when, the, when, when he was baptized by John the Baptist. And then it says that he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And then it says that he returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. And then he picked up the scroll of Isaiah and he read the words where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then said, this scripture is fulfilled in your sight. Everything that Jesus did was through the power of the Holy Spirit while he was on the earth. So the Spirit present in the ministry of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. And then it was the Holy Spirit that empowered the resurrection of Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says, but if the Spirit of him that raised up Christ from the dead dwell in you. So in other words, the Spirit of God empowered the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then finally, and it's not a finally, it's just a finally for our purposes, but the Spirit of God is who takes possession of the lives of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The only member of the Godhead, the Trinity, that doesn't have a body is the Holy Spirit. The Father is seated upon his throne. The Son of God said, touch me, feel me, put your hand, your finger in, in my hand and in my side. But the Spirit of God is formless. Without a body. Why? Because whose body does the Spirit of God desire to possess and inhabit? Those that have given their bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, the Spirit of God will take possession of that body and use it for the glory of God. And so it's the Holy Spirit that takes possession of those who put their faith in Jesus. He is the formless omnipresence of God. He is the Spirit of the living God. And so Jesus announces, he says, this is who is coming. It's the Spirit. Uh, there in, in chapter 14, he says, even the Spirit. Now, he goes on and he tells us uh, here in these, it, 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 the provision of who the Spirit is. He answers, look at verse uh, 17. He says, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him. And now listen to what he says the Spirit is going to do. He says, for he dwelleth with you, and he shall be in you. Notice those words, because that's important. At this time that Jesus is speaking this, the Spirit of God is alongside of them. In fact, the Spirit of God is alongside of Every man, woman, and child that lives upon the planet. Because the Bible says that God is omnipresent. That is, God is everywhere. David said in Psalm 139, he said, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up into heaven, you're there. If I descend into the deep, into hell, you're there. If I go to the far side of the sea, even there, God's, God's spirit. There's nowhere that God's spirit is not present. God is everywhere. And, and that's what Jesus is saying. Right now, the Spirit dwells with you, but He shall be, later, future, He shall be in you. 
Now, the fulfillment of that, you can read it. It's in John chapter 20. It was after the crucifixion. It says that Jesus appeared to the disciples, and it says that he breathed on them, and he said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, if Jesus breathes on you and says, Receive the Holy Ghost, you receive the Holy Ghost. And so at that point, the Spirit of God moved inside of them. It went from being someone who was with them to someone who was inside of them. And that's what happens when a person gets saved. Jesus said, Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will open, I will come in and, you know, sup with him and he with me. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. The promise that Jesus is giving that the Spirit will inhabit you, indwell you. He is with you. He shall be in you. Verse 18. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come unto you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But you shall see me. Because I live, you shall live also. At that day, you shall know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. That's the evidence of someone that loves Jesus. Notice that verse there. You know, people will stand in a church and they'll shout at the top of their lungs that they love Jesus. They'll wear t-shirts. They'll put bumper stickers on their car. They'll make professions. You know, they'll say, I love Jesus with their mouth. Jesus said that you don't demonstrate love towards God with your mouth or with, you know, your songs or your clothes. The way that you demonstrate love for God, he says, he that loves me, and this is how you know, is he that hath my commandments and keeps them. That's who loves God. Not those that hear the word only or say things with their mouth, but those that yield their lives in patient obedience and faith to him. And then he says, and he that loves me shall be loved of my father And I will love him, and I will manifest myself unto him. So he gives to us the promise that there's a provision of a guide. And now what he does is he begins to tell us um, what promises are given to us once the Holy Spirit is given. What does the Holy Spirit do? In other words, if we're believers in Jesus, and God has not left us comfortless, and he has filled us with his Spirit... What does the Holy Spirit do in the life of a believer? What does the Spirit do for you and I? That's what Jesus now begins to tell them. What does the Spirit do? He begins in verse 21. The first thing he mentions there that he will do is that he will manifest himself to the believers. At the end of the thing, he says that we will manifest, I will manifest myself unto him. And that is that we will begin to recognize or understand or see Jesus, not physically with our eyes, but we, he, you can manifest something without seeing it with your eyes. He'll make himself known. You, you remember what it was like, I hope you do, what it was like when you first got saved. You know, maybe not that first moment, but w- within that first month, you knew something was different. You, you could understand things that you never understood before. There was things happening in your life that had never happened before. And you began to realize, wow, there's something real, something alive about this. I didn't join a religion. I didn't just start going to church. That that he's real, he's alive. And and when people would tell you you were foolish, 
and, and, and would contest. And, and, and you remember, I don't know if you were like me, but I was so zealous, I thought everyone else could see what I was seeing. I didn't see anything with my eyes. But I thought everyone else could see it too. And so I would say, don't you understand? Can't you see? What's wrong with you? They can't see. When the Spirit of God moves in, you can see. You see what Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus does. You understand his word, his purpose, his promise. It makes sense. You begin to grow. Verse 22, it says, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, the other Judas. He says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself unto us and not unto the world? How is it that we're going to see you? That's a good question. Common sense. And Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Do you see the Trinity in that verse? You see the father, the son, and the spirit in one dwelling in the believer. And that's how he's manifested unto us. It's internal. It's not external. It's not visible. It's inside. And he that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which has sent me. And these things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. In other words, Jesus was saying these things to them before the Spirit came, before they understood, before they knew what he was talking about. They were seeing him physically at that time, but they knew nothing of what he was saying would happen uh, to them internally, spiritually. So what else does the Spirit do? Two more things in verse 26. He says that the Spirit will do for us. He says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall, and here's the first one, he says, he shall teach you all things. Now pause there. The Spirit of God is the one who takes responsibility to guide us into truth, to teach us. In 1 John, I think it's in chapter 2, but it might be in chapter 3. You check. I know it's there. <laughs> Jesus said that, or John said this. John spoke and he said that. Radical claim. He says that the anointing that you have received of him gives to you an unction. You have an unction from the Holy One, an internal monitor, an internal truth gauge. And then he says this. He says, you have need that no man teach you. You don't need a pastor or a prophet or a Bible scholar to explain the truth of scripture to you. You don't need that. Now, he wasn't saying it's unbiblical, obviously. You know, you throw out everything, you know, when you do that. But you don't need it. Why? Because you have an anointing. And he said that the anointing that you have received from him will teach you all things. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's, now, we know what that is. Because, I mean, yesterday I drove, I, I made a trip up to Albany. And I, I learned something on that trip. I learned that radio is becoming obsolete. Because what I've discovered is that there are more Christian radio stations than there are secular radio stations. You know, there's all kinds of Christian radio stations. You know, you go up through the dial. And, I, and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, like, why is this happening? And, 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 you know, the only rational thought I could come up with is that radio stations are folding and churches are picking them up, <laughs> you know. And it, it's kind of true with iPods, I, iPhones. You take your music with you. You know, the radio is, is slowly becoming less and less of an influence. So, but here's what happened when I'm flipping through the Christian radio stations. I heard the wackiest, craziest teachings 
<laughs> you know, I mean, insane stuff, you know, salvation by works and, uh, you know, just whatever, you know, total different topic. I don't want to get on a tangent, but, but here's what happens is that all of a sudden you start hearing something that isn't true. And the truth monitor starts going crazy inside you. Your heart starts beating. The check engine light goes on. You're like, what in the world? What are they saying? You know, where is this coming from? You know, why? Because the spirit of God leads us into truth. Have you ever heard something? You heard a doctrine. You heard something. And you're like, look, I, I ain't no Bible scholar, but that ain't right. That's the spirit of God in you. He, he leads you into truth. He helps to separate what is right from what is wrong in the things that you hear. So he says, he will lead you into all truth. He'll teach you all things. And then he says, and, and I love this one, next one, he will bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And that is great. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. A lot of times it happens at the least expected time. You end up in a conversation with someone, a discussion of spiritual things. And a question is raised or a conflict is you know, issued in some way, and all of a sudden, you start quoting scripture you didn't know you knew. You start saying things, you say, how did I know that? Or how did I know how to say that? And, and, and you leave there and you feel like you're walking on a cloud. You're like, that was amazing. You know, just talking about, just right off the cuff, all these scriptures, all this truth. Where did that come from? I know where it came from. It's what Jesus said would happen when the Spirit of God lives inside him. He will bring all things to your remembrance of whatsoever I have said unto you. He brings the Word of God to remembrance. The greatest scripture memory program that you can partake in is to be filled with the Holy Ghost. (laughs) Because He will bring it to your mind when you need it. Whether it's for you and you need it because you're facing a temptation and you need help or whether you're in a discussion and you're talking about the things of God and there's something to say, a lot of times there's something not to say. <laughs> how, many, how many of us have spoken when we should have kept our mouth shut? <laughs> See, people going, yeah, me, done it, been there. <laughs> he didn't, if he doesn't bring it to mind, don't say it. But he does that. He brings all things into our remembrance, the things that he says. And so he gives us the promise that he's going to do that. Then, and we'll skip now, chapter 15, the first 25 verses, and I'm not going to read them to you. Read them on your own, is that what the Spirit will do, and, and listen, only the Spirit can do this for you. And that is to bring forth lasting fruit in your life. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Love, joy, peace, patience or long-suffering, kindness, meekness, gentleness, self-control. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can produce those things within our life. And they come as we abide in Him. That's John chapter 15, the vine and the branches. A great illustration, famous passage that Jesus taught. I'm sure we've all heard it. But spiritual fruit comes from abiding in the Lord and from the the Holy Spirit working those things into and then out of our lives. So spiritual fruit comes from the Holy Spirit. And then uh, in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 15, Jesus tells us another thing that the Holy Spirit will always do 
in our lives. He says, but when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, here it is, he shall testify of me. And you shall also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. the, The purpose of the Holy Spirit is always to point to Jesus. He always points us to Jesus. And that's a great gauge, a great scale, a great weight to put in the scale when you're testing. Is something of God? Is this the Holy Spirit speaking of me? Does it point to Jesus? When you're listening to a sermon and you're tempted to think within yourself, well, this is anointed because of the energy that's being given or because of the eloquence that I'm experiencing, the poetic emotional move that is happening, is this really the Spirit of God? Well, does it point to Jesus? Because if it's anointed of the Spirit of God, it's always going to point to Jesus. In some way, it might not be you know, that he's the topic of the sermon, but does this point to and glorify Jesus and his word? He says he will testify of me, and you will bear witness because you've been with me. It will resonate because you know me, you've been with me, you'll, you'll, you'll recognize it. It'll be a familiar aroma to you. So he points to Jesus. Then he goes on in chapter 16 and, uh, and, and gives them some more. He gives them a warning in the first six verses. And again, you can read that on your own. But the warning is basically like, watch out. Because if you want to live the spirit-filled life, you're going to endure a little bit of persecution. <laughs> Last night, uh, talking with my kids, we, we were talking about, I don't know how we got on the topic, but there's a verse in the Proverbs that says this. It says, wrath is cruel and anger is raging, but who can stand before envy? In other words, you know, if someone's angry at you to the point of wrath and raging anger, that's, you know, that's not a pleasant situation, but it's much better than when someone is jealous of you. Because when someone's jealous of you, sincerely jealous, you're in a lot more danger than if someone's just angry. And, and, and Jesus is the illustration of that, isn't he? At the tomb of Lazarus, he raises a man from the dead. And the Pharisees that saw it said, we got to kill this guy. <laughs> We're going to kill the guy that can bring people back to, to life. <laughs> it makes no sense. It's completely driven by envy. Envy is a powerful thing. It's dangerous. See? And when you have the Spirit of God living in your life, you have an advantage because the things that He gives you, what you have, the security, the assurance of where you're going, the truth of this life. I mean, do you remember what it was like when you didn't have those things? I mean, you're suicidal. What's the purpose of life? Why am I here on this planet? And then when you have those things, you have a treasure that the rest of the world can't handle. They don't know what to do with it. And you have a light in you that stings and it causes persecution. And so Jesus gives the warning there in the first six verses. And then he talks about in verses 7 through 11, the the role of the Holy Spirit in the world. So we've talked about some things that the Spirit of God does in us. And there's more when we get down to verse 12. But now for a minute, he talks about what's the Spirit doing in the world? What is the role of the Holy Spirit? He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. That means absolutely necessary. That's very controversial. I'm sure that many of them said, Lord, we could argue that point. (laughs) We think you should stay. (laughs) 
He says, no, it's necessary that I go. For if I don't go away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And so it's necessary for Jesus to leave in order for the Spirit to come. And Jesus is saying, it's necessary for you that the Spirit comes. Why? Why is that? Here's why. Because as long as Jesus is present physically, he cannot be in you personally. He's external. At most, he can be external. He can help you. He could, you know, turn loaves into more loaves. He can cure your sickness. You know, those are good things, but it's a shadow. It holds, it doesn't hold a candle to having him inside you. Because once he's inside you, you have his mind, you have his heart, you have his life, you have his joy. All those things that were external before are now internal. They're a part of you. And so it's light years better to have Jesus inside of you, though you can't see him with your eyes. Light years better. Expedient, Jesus says, that I go away. And then he says, and when he is come, and here's what the Spirit does. He will reprove or convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. And, you know, without analyzing every word that Jesus says there, essentially two things he's telling us that the Spirit of God will do. Number one is that he will draw men to repentance. And that is the reason why the Spirit comes alongside. Remember back when Jesus said he's with you and he shall be in you? The reason why the Spirit comes alongside a person is to convince them that they need to come to Christ. We experienced that. If you know Jesus, you know what that was like when the Spirit of God was working overtime on you, bringing you to the point of recognizing that you needed a Savior and that Jesus was that Savior. That's what the Spirit does. I could tell you the three-hour story of how the Holy Spirit did that in my life over a period of five years. Five years. The Spirit of God drawing me, speaking to me, convicting me of sin, showing me that I was messed up. And it took five years for me to finally say, all right, you know, <laughs> and then get saved and go, oh, wow, this ain't so bad. You know? And then also the Spirit's work is to convict of sin. And he does that in believer and non-believer alike. The Spirit of God convicts us of sin. How many of you have ever felt that? I know that I feel that on a very regular basis. You know, you give in in some area of your life. You, you, you succumb to some temptation or you, you, know, you make a snap judgment that turns out to be a very foolish thing, you know, or something. And the Spirit of God is right there to say, tilt, <laughs> fault. And you're like, oh, your heart, you know, and everything twisted in a knot and, and to, to bring you to repentance. So his role is to draw men to repent and to convict of sin. But now he continues in verse 12. And this is the final part of our study here. What, what else does he do in us? Verse 12, he says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. So if Jesus has things to say that he's not saying while he's present, then the obvious conclusion is that he's going to say them after he departs. And so, so the thing that he's telling us here is that the Spirit of God is going to speak to you. The Spirit of God is going to speak to you on behalf of Christ. And that's, I mean, I hope that as we're hearing these things, you're realizing that this isn't theology. This is life. This is what the Spirit of God wants to do in your life. He wants to speak to you. He wants to give you instruction. He wants to teach you. 
It's a promise that he's given to us. He's going to speak to us. People say all the time, the Lord spoke to me. Now, I, I remember for years I would be like, you know, I might, the hair on my neck would stand up when I heard that. I'm like, God, God spoke to you, you know? And, and for years, Lord, when are you going to speak to me? I would read about how the Lord spoke to Abraham, and I'm like, what did that sound like? <laughs> you know. And then finally one day I realized, you know what, God's been speaking to me for years. And I've been sitting here waiting for this audible voice or some, you know, some miraculous thing to happen, like the radio to turn on when I didn't turn it on, or, or something crazy like that. But that's not how he speaks. He speaks, the Bible says it's a still small voice. And, and here's, the, here's the, the, the most confusing part of it, is that it sounds a whole lot like your own thoughts. <laughs> but, but he wants to speak to us. Verse 13, he wants to guide us. He says, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak and he will show you things to come. He wants to be our guide. You know, we talk about how the Lord led me. How does the Lord lead? He leads us by his spirit. You say, how does that work? Because, you know, we understand it in the physical sense, but how does God lead a person's life when life is involved in decisions and actions and this whole combination of thought and word and deed and, you know, circumstance? And all? How, how does the Lord lead a person's life? Great story in Genesis chapter 24. And uh, I'll just put that out there. You can read it. But the servant of Abraham, who was sent on a specific mission to go find this specific woman somewhere in the world. <laughs> you know, how do you go do that? And it says that he just prayed. And he said, Lord, lead me. And he, and he you know, went through, he prayed. And, and the Lord led him. And he testifies later on in the chapter. And he says, I, you know... While I was yet uh, thinking in prayer, it says, the Lord led me. I being in the way, it says, the Lord led me. He leads us. He wants to lead us. How can a man know the future? How can any of us know what's gonna, what the world's going to look like in a week or in a month or in a year? We don't know any of those things. But God knows what the world's going to look like. And what an advantage we have when the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and, and we have the promise that he's going to lead us. And what more incentive do we have than that to just give our lives completely to him and say, Lord, take it, especially in days like this. Lord, lead me. And he wants to. It's in the Lord's prayer. You know, it says, it doesn't, you know, we, we read the whole sentence and so we miss it, but it says, lead us not into temptation. We say, well, don't lead me into, no, no, no. It's lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He wants to lead us. It's his desire. It's his promise through his word, through his spirit. Verse 13 also is that he will show you things to come. He's going to reveal things that are yet future. He'll show you. He'll show you things that are going to happen before they happen. It's what he wants to do. And then verse 14, he shall glorify me. He always glorifies Christ. He will receive of mine and he will show it unto you. And then in verse 15, he says, All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show, uh, show them unto you. And so the, the next thing that he tells us that the Spirit is going to do is that he's going to impart his gifts to us. One of the 
things that we'll look at in the next couple weeks when we talk about the Holy Spirit are the gifts that the Spirit gives, the various gifts that God gives to his people. And Jesus here is saying that he's going to, all that the Father has, it's mine. And, and the Spirit is going to take what's mine and he's going to give it to you. He's going to impart to us the things of God, the gifts of God. That's what Jesus meant. Remember where we started with this study in Matthew 28 when Jesus said, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me? It's the same thing he's saying here. It's all been given to me and now I'm giving it to you. And so the Spirit gives us the gifts, the things of God. He imparts them to us. And then uh, verses 21 through 28 of chapter uh, 16 Let me just read it to you. I won't comment much because we're out of time, but he says, A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow but because her hour has come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. And you now, therefore, have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man takes from you. And in that day you shall ask me nothing, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time comes when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray to the Father for you, For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and I go unto the Father. And so what is Jesus telling us here as it relates to the coming of the Holy Spirit? You know, in a nutshell, it is that the Holy Spirit will be given and he will help us and lead us in prayer. You know, how many times do we not know how to pray? You, you, you want to pray. You set aside time to pray. And then you come to prayer and you don't know what to, to pray. You can't find words or, you know, you can't engage, you know. Part of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives is that he helps us in prayer. Romans chapter 8, it says that the Spirit of God also helpeth our infirmities because we know not how to pray as we ought. And so he gives us sometimes groanings even that the Spirit interprets, (laughs) you know, that He knows what the will of God is. And so the Spirit of God helps us in prayer to to pray according to His will what what it is that God wants in our lives. Now, if you just go through and, you know, if you weren't taking notes, I I would challenge you, go back through these chapters with, with a pencil and just circle the promises, the things that the Spirit of God is going to do in your life that He wants to do in your life. And don't look at it theologically. Look at it personally. Because God, this morning, he's not speaking to a crowd. He's speaking to individuals. What he's saying is to those that believe on him. He's given us these things. This is what God wants to do in our lives. And how little do we take advantage of it? It's like we have this untapped well, this treasure chest of God's promise and power that's available to us for the asking, for the taking, for the having. And yet, so often we rely upon ourselves. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. But yet how often do we rely upon our own understanding, our own knowledge of how the world works, and yet he promises all these advantages, all these blessings to us. May God give us more of his Holy Spirit that's been poured out for us. In the weeks to come, we'll look at more more of what the Bible teaches about the work of the Spirit and the life of God's people. Amen? Amen. Questions, comments, thoughts?